Hey everybody, thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. Hey, uh, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to start right at chap- uh, chapter 6 of the book of Mark, all the way down towards the middle slash end, verse 30. And our text today is chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And if you want to, I want to encourage you, what I'm going to be teaching you today is like how to study the Bible on your own. I believe that everything in the Word of God can be explained by anything else in the Word of God. And if it's not explainable, the Holy Spirit then is there to teach us and lead us along the, the way. And then I also want to challenge you and encourage you, don't just listen to my words. As Acts 17.11 says, is the Bereans, they studied the Bible to make sure that everything that was being taught to them was accurate to God's word. So don't take my word for it. Open the text for yourself. I'm reading out of the NIV translation, but also for further study, chapter, uh, chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, chapter 9 of the book of Luke, and chapter 6 of the book of John all contain this same story, but with other additives mixed in. So, all right, let's dive in. Starting in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. So Jesus says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half of year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and then give it to them? I love that. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass so that they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the bread. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, this story has so much that could be taught about it. There's tons of little nuances here, the 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes, all of them being satisfied to the full, representing how God alone is the only one who can satisfy, that bread alone does not satisfy. How Mark even describes that it's green grass to give a little picture of where they're actually sitting near the town. And then the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This could mean that there was only men there. Or it could mean that their families were showing up and they were just counting the heads of household, which means that there could have been upwards to 20,000 people at this party. And I know at first glance, you guys are thinking this is a nice little Sunday school story. You've probably all heard it before had you been in church for the last five years or so. This is a story that comes up, Jesus feeding the 5,000. 
And you're probably thinking, Josh, yeah, okay, big deal. Jesus, you know, talks a little too long, gets too late in the day, they're all hungry, so he whips up a miraculous dish and feeds the many. I love this. My, my wife actually said, she's like, did you notice how none of the men were forward-thinking enough to bring their own lunch? <laughs> so, okay. But from first glance, this is Jesus hosting a picnic, right? However, if we dig into the historical context and the literary context and then the social context of the time, we find out that it is indeed so much more than just a miracle picnic. And I love this. If you look at the context, it's centered around two main things. There's a whole lot more, but I'm going to be talking about two main things. The story we have going here is centered around the context of both the apostles returning from, as it says in verses 12 and 13, having been sent out to preach both the good news and repentance, as well as casting out many demons, anointing with oil the hurting and healing the sick. And the story is also centered around the context of violent Roman oppression. Literally just before this, you can read that John the Baptist was beheaded with his head literally brought to Herod on a platter. That's some Braveheart type storyline there, guys. And I know some of you thought that the Bible's a little boring, but if you actually read it and dig in, whew, it's far from that. So in taking a deeper look into the four different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can clearly deduce that no, this is not a miracle picnic happening. This is Jesus both teaching, serving, and showing that there's so much more going on. All right, let's start right at the beginning of the passage. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Remember, they're just coming back from having been sent out to perform miracles and spread the good news. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. So Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's get some rest. Now remember, John the Baptist was just beheaded. He was a dear friend of Jesus. They were actually like, they grew up together. They were cousins. And so you got to think, there's grief happening here. And the Bible gives us a little glimpse into the humanity of Jesus, as well as a little glimpse into the incredible character of Jesus. Because if you think about it, if one of your friends had just passed away, you're not going to want to be around a group of 5,000 plus people. You're going to want to find some solitude, probably go get something to eat, and find some comfort in your closest friends. So that's what Jesus invites his disciples to do. And no doubt, we all would have responded probably pretty awfully in that. Think, you're tired. All right, right away, I'm out. I don't do well with being tired. You're hungry, my wife's out, right? <laughs> Having just received the news about the death of a close friend, man, I, I would need some space. But that's not how Jesus responds. And that's not what he asks his disciples to do either. And as we continue through this story, we will see that this is the way that Jesus continues to work, completely outside of what's expected and completely outside of what's normal. In verse 34, we go on to read, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now Mark points out this this interesting little anecdote here, this line, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And this is a very significant phrase. Of course, to you and I, we, we tend to look at sheep and shepherd as a very pastoral image. Look at Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd, gathering his lambs in his arms and carrying them close to his heart. Or even in John 10, verse 4, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And that is all correct and good. However, Jesus may actually be quoting Moses here from the book of Numbers, chapter 27, where Moses is praying to God, saying, May the Lord appoint a man over this community to go out and lead them so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And many biblical commentators believe that throughout the Old Testament, when it talks about sheep without a shepherd, it is actually talking about the need for a political military leader. So when Jesus looks out and sees them coming and says they're like sheep without a shepherd, he knows what they're after. They want a political military leader, a revolutionary, one who will help them overthrow this oppressive Roman rule in that area. They want to make him king. And you're probably thinking, it doesn't say that in Mark. You're right. It says that in the book of John. That's how we know. In the book of John, verse 5, it says, or verse 15, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people here weren't just seeking a healer. Life was not currently good for the local Jewish family. Roman rule was abusive and controlling, and they were desperate for a big change. They were seeking a revolutionary to make it all happen for them. They were seeking someone to liberate them from Roman oppression. They were looking for a king. And again, how does Jesus respond? Completely outside of what's expected and what's normal. It says in verse 34 going on, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. Again, going back to what we call normal, most of us in that situation, most men in that situation at that time, seeing the opportunity for power, would take a much different approach, even today in the Middle East or amongst guerrilla revolutionaries throughout the world, leaders in those remote parts. When disciples come to them requesting a revolutionary leader, seeking liberation from oppression, those leaders give out weapons, and they begin weapons training. But again, Jesus takes an entirely different and unexpected approach. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, quotes it this way, how monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, and how gloriously different the saints. And perhaps we can requote C.S. Lewis a little bit differently and say it this way. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors and revolutionaries have been. And how gloriously different is Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't disperse weapons and begin weapons training like everybody else would have done. No, what does he do? He gives out his word. He teaches them. And he gives out bread and gives the disciples bread distribution training. Mark goes on to say, by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples come to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and get some food for themselves. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said, that would be more than half a year's wages. Are we to go spend that much on bread and distribute it amongst the people? How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Jesus said. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So then Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sit down in hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves, two fish, he looks up to heaven, gives thanks, breaks the loaves, and then gives it to the disciples to distribute to the people. And I love that he just adds this there. He also divided the two fish among them. Just those little details I love. And Jesus sees what they're looking for, right? He sees that they're looking for a king but he also sees their physical need at the time. 
and he takes it so much further than what is normal and what is expected. How so? Well, let's start with the bread. Now look, to you and me in our modern culture, what does bread mean? Right? When you look at bread, what do you think? Carbohydrates? Maybe a good sandwich or some French toast, right? Maybe some nice ciabatta? That's, that's as deep as our symbolic meaning of bread goes in today's culture. But in ancient times, when foods were scarce, and there was no certainty that it would be there when you needed it, bread meant life. So what does Jesus do? He gives out his word, and he gives out bread. He provides for their needs far more than they ever expected. Bread was both a symbol for life and a sustainer of life. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John chapter 6, verse 35. Yes, he says, I am a revolutionary leader, but it is not and will never be as you expect. Other revolutionary leaders come dealing out death. I come dealing life. How monotonously like all the revolutionaries and tyrants and how gloriously different is Jesus Christ. So when Jesus starts giving out his word and his bread, he's actually saying, y'all, I'm bringing you life in two ways. He addresses their eternal need and shares that he is an eternal provider, i.e. the bread as his word, the gospel of salvation, as well as meeting their physical need and immediate need at the time, i.e. bread as food. And we begins to teach them many things. He then begins to distribute bread, and he is pointing to the life of his word, the sent-out message of the gospel, that his word, in fact, is life, and it is meant for all to hear. It is meant for all to take and eat. For example, in Matthew 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness arguing with, with, with the devil, it's one of my favorite passages. Go check out Matthew 4 later this afternoon. He says to the devil, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then again in John 6, Jesus is quoting Moses. It is not Moses who gave you the true bread from heaven when he fed you with manna in the wilderness. It is my father who gives you true bread of heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and they still died. But here is the bread that a man may eat and not die. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man alone can give you. Here's what Jesus is saying. You have a real hunger. There's a real need here, and it's far deeper than physical hunger, far deeper than any bread itself can fill. And if you don't get that hunger, that emptiness filled by me, the bread of life, if you don't address the real issue and seek the real physician, the true provider and the good shepherd and the only king and perfect revolutionary, you're going to starve, for, starve forever. And all your revolutions are going to go awry and fail and fall unless you deal with this true hunger. John Paul Sartre, a well-known philosopher, existentialist, and atheist, speaks very well to this hunger that Jesus is talking about when he says, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. And what Sartre is saying is, I don't believe in God but I'm hungry for God. In fact, my whole being, my soul, cries out for its creator, for what only God can give. Still, sadly, as an atheist, Sartre believes that there is no cure for this hunger, no cure for this spiritual starvation, but Jesus is saying it differently, far different than what is expected and far different than what is normal. And he says, there is a cure, but there's only one cure. 
I am the cure. He's saying, I have the bread alone that can satisfy your spiritual hunger. I have the bread that can satisfy this real spiritual emptiness. I have the cure for what can liberate you from eternal oppression. I bring a revolution that provides eternal change, one that will never go awry, one that will never fail, and one that will never be overtaken. And if you're going to be part of my revolution, it's going to look a whole lot different than any other revolution that has ever taken place in history. It's a revolution of life, not death. One of hope and healing, one that restores, not one that destroys. It's a revolution that brings about all the spiritual, all the social, all the emotional and physical change that we truly need. This is God's revolution. And how does Jesus approach that revolution invitation with his disciples? It's so subtle. He says it right in the middle of that big old passage. Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And I don't think we have to read into it too much to know that the emphasis is on the word you. You do something. You feed them. You give them something to eat. In John 6, 6, it says this, he asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. See what I love about our creator in heaven? God already has a plan. He knows what he's doing, and he invites us in to be a part of what he's doing. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of what he's doing, because I've tried my little revolutions. I've tried my little successes, and all of them have gone awry. Every single one of them will fail and fall unless I seek the true revolutionary, unless I seek his kingdom come and his will be done in my life. There was a saying that I heard growing up quite a bit. My mom can attest to this. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And in reading through scripture time and time again, every person he called on to be part of what he was doing was completely unqualified. Look at his disciples. You give them something to eat. They're thinking he's crazy. Us? Five loaves? Two fish? And these weren't like trout-sized fish. They weren't big fish. They were more like sardine-type fish, right? That's why I love that Mark adds that detail. He spreads out the, the bread And he did it with the fish as well, and everybody was satisfied. He invites us to be part of what he's doing, and he knows we're completely unqualified. Just look at the stories of the Old Testament. From Abraham to Moses to Isaac to Jacob, all of them on their own failed and fell. But by the power and grace of Jesus, they were able to move forward and continue to be a part of his plan, what God had already intended to do from the beginning. And if you and I are being completely honest, we are just like them, completely unqualified. I'm completely unqualified. And that's not just a falsely humble admission, it's the absolute truth. And on my own, and I'll call you to the carpet too, on our own, we are completely unqualified. But here's the kicker, we're only unqualified without Jesus. With Jesus, he makes us qualified. He doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And for those of us who call on him as our Lord and our Savior, we are called by him. So when Jesus demonstrates this kind of call on his disciples, they're baffled. Us, you're crazy. Five loaves, two fish. Now Mark, Mark shows the sarcasm here that Matthew, Luke, and John do not. They, they settle it down a little bit. Maybe they want to make themselves look a little bit better. Like, they, like, yeah, sure, Jesus, that's a great idea. We'll do that. Mark is completely honest. He says, you're telling us to do the impossible. 
You're crazy. And of course, that's Jesus' entire point altogether. He says, until you see what I'm calling you to do, that it is impossible and that you are absolutely unqualified to do it, you're going to continually try by your own strength, your own effort, and in your own purpose and time and time and time again, you'll be completely ineffective. All your little revolutions, what you think you know is best, will fail and fall. But notice the shift here. Notice his power happens through the disciples. It's not by their strength. Jesus asked the disciples for everything they have, five loaves, two fish. He asked for their meager givings and asked them to trust, asked them to trust him with all of it. Let's continue on. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And here's the big thing too. He doesn't just use unqualified people. Notice how he works with the food that they have. It doesn't just fall like manna from heaven. It's not like the Elvis Dumbledore making all the food appear on the tables magically. Jesus works with five loaves and two bread, or two fish. And he works with they've, what they've got, which in itself is completely inadequate for the job. And then it is only as the disciples go out with this inadequate food, with their inadequate hands, is that food multiplied? Jesus chooses to meet the needs of many by choosing to call on the unqualified few and really seemingly inadequate resources. And as they go out in faith, seeking his way above their way of thinking he qualifies their work, it's not them that are qualified to do the work. It's his power that works through the disciples. And what Jesus is revealing here and what he is calling his disciples to as well as what he is calling you and me to, it is impossible. There are days when it will seem way over your head. But those are the days when he calls us to get on our knees, humble ourselves before the Lord and say, your will be done. Your work in me and through me because I don't have the power. I'm completely inadequate. But God, it is by your strength, your power, your effort, and our willingness for him to do so. Oh, how gloriously different the way of Jesus, that he never does what is normal or what is expected, and he calls us to be a part of that too. And as Jesus asked the disciples to give him everything they had, he leads by example and shows us how he gave everything of himself. And this is the word of life, the bread of life that he delivers to the masses that day. In talking about revolutions and them seeking a revolution, Jesus points out the reality of the situation. Because how do revolutions in history start? By the removal of power, the removal of control. It starts with a fight or a gunshot, an assassination or a battle. Forced out by death, removed from power. That's when the revolution starts. And therefore, all revolutions start with acts of violence. And it's no different here. Jesus' revolution is kicked off the exactly same way. And I know how I said before that Jesus was different. He came to give life, not death. But here's the kicker. He came to give life for us and took the death upon himself. That revolutionary act, which this whole thing is based, came died and rose again through Jesus Christ. And you can see it in verse 41. It's a hint, but it's a broad hint. And it's hard to miss. When he says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, literally in the Greek it says, he blessed and broke. These two verbs, he blessed and broke, 
In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, it's the same thing when he's around the table the day before he's taken to be killed with his friends. He blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he passes it to them. Jesus is saying to everybody who's coming to him seeking a revolutionary and a liberator, those trying to make him king, he says, you're looking for all the wrong things. You want a new Moses. You want somebody that will feed you bread from the wilderness, one who will liberate you from oppression. But I am the new Moses. I am the ultimate Moses. I have come to do the ultimate exodus. Not liberate you just for a while from political oppression, but for eternity, from sin and from death itself. And here's how I'm going to do it. On a cross, giving of my life, that you might have life. Laying it down, my body, blessed and broken. Looking at the very people killing him, his enemies, the people rejecting him, as he's dying, he says, Father, forgive them. And then he dies. Or in other words, he blessed the people, and then he broke. It's only by his power on the cross that we are qualified, because he proved his power when he died, allowing control and power to be taken from him. And then he proved his power by raising from the dead so that we can have life. And as it says in John 10, 10, it's not just life. It's life in abundance. It's life to the full. I have come that you might have life to the full. And it may look far different than what is expected and far different than what is normal. It is life to the fullest in the way that doesn't look like a full life sometimes. It doesn't mean getting everything we dream. It means laying our lives down to provide him with full power and full control of ourselves. When he gave example of giving up control and power, he was showing us how to do it, to give of ourselves for his sake, to choose his way, his will, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's far different than normal. It's far different than expected. So here's what I want to ask you all to do this morning. Dig into the word. God's word is life. Don't just let it be a Sunday morning thing. It's full of power, but it's not a kind of power that you're going to expect. It might be a power that causes you to get down to your knees and say, Lord, your will be done and kingdom come. And then relinquish control and power to him. The one worthy of it all, the only king worthy of a crowd and the only revolutionary powerful enough to bring real life-giving eternal change and then trust him with everything. Confess your sins for he's faithful to give. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and his will and turn over your idols of work and wealth, status, perception, fear, regret, a desire for change and revolution and allow him to take all of it. Follow his revolutionary example and give of yourself completely to what he's calling you to. To walk away from the past and allow him to reveal his plans for your future. And then, as the disciples did with the bread, walk forward in faith and watch in amazement as he works in you and through you. Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.